sex, women, adultery. That grabbed your attention, didn't it? Now you are listening. Tabloid newspapers know that if they put just one of those words in the front page headline, they are guaranteed to sell more copies. Sexual misdemeanors draw a crowd. They always have done. And that is precisely what the teachers of the law and the Pharisees were hoping for. This scene that we have just read together is an out and out trap. The behaviour of the religious leaders is cold and calculated. They know full well the outcome that they are looking for. Over the last few weeks and months, they've got to know Jesus a little bit. They've heard the core of his message several times. So as they bring this woman before him, they suspect that Jesus will want to forgive her. Indeed, that is what they are banking on. For as soon as Jesus moves to do that in public, they will then be able to accuse him of teaching the people to ignore God's law. In Deuteronomy 22, the penalty for adultery was death. If Jesus teaches something otherwise, then these leaders will have the grounds to dispose of him in a like manner. Of course, that is what they hope for. They've had enough of Jesus, enough of him challenging their positions and stealing their limelight. There is so much about the religious leaders' behaviour in this passage that is suspicious. To start with, how did they even manage to catch this woman in the act? For the law to be upheld at that time, two eyewitnesses were required. How do you get two eyewitnesses to an intimate moment behind closed doors? Had they set a trap? Had they lain in wait? If they had, then they would have broken the law themselves. The rabbis taught that if you you witness someone about to commit a sin, zeal for the Lord and compassion for the person involved required you to step in and speak up. You were to do all that you could to guide the person onto a righteous path before it was too late. Clearly the accusers had not done this. Secondly, where is the lover? Where is the man? We all know it takes two to tango. If this woman had been caught in the act, then he must have been caught as well. Why was he not hauled before Jesus? Had he been part of the secret plot as well? The honey in a honey trap? Or had he just been allowed to get away with his part? History tells us that women have always been held to a higher moral standard than men in this regard. If an adolescent man sleeps around, we make light of it. Boys will be boys, we say. If a young woman does it, we call her easy or impure. This is nothing new. And the Old Testament, the Old Testament law would have none of it. Both male and female were supposed to be punished equally. Therefore, there's something very wrong here that the man is not being dragged onto the scene as well. Thirdly, why did these teachers of the law drag this woman before Jesus in public, right in the heart of the temple courts? He could have easily had this conversation quietly, privately away with a little bit of decorum. 
It's clear for all to see that these accusers have no interest in being compassionate. They've no interest in a fair trial. They want Jesus caught and the woman lynched. End of story. And remember, these are supposed to be the upstanding moral advisors in the land. With all this suspicious and downright deceitful behaviour being displayed, we are left in no doubt that this is a trap. And this poor woman is being used. However guilty she may have been of a serious sin, she is merely a tool in their attack. And clearly as they march her into full public view, the religious leaders are very pleased with themselves. They are enjoying their sense of moral superiority over her. And they are enjoying backing Jesus into a corner that he cannot easily escape from. Before we go any further, I want us to recognise that this story highlights everything that had gone wrong in Israel in the first century. The religious elite are not observing the law in an attempt to honour God. They are twisting the law for their own devices. Their pious-looking legalism is simply a tool to reinforce their own power and position. As a result, it is clear that their pattern of thinking is utterly removed from God's pattern of thinking. No wonder they cannot recognise the Son of God for who he is, even though Jesus is standing right before their very eyes. So I hope we understand what is going on in this passage. This is a trap. The question for us to answer now is just how is Jesus going to get himself out of it? What comes next is both profound and beautiful. Jesus takes this opportunity to give some very important teaching. It is wisdom that gets him out of this perilous situation unscathed. The first thing that Jesus makes clear to all his onlookers is that all sin is serious, not just sexual sin. What the religious leaders were currently up to was just as bad. You see, God's law is like a pane of glass. You break one small part of it and you break all of it. Throughout this passage, Jesus never defends the woman's sin. He never denies that she has committed it. And he never pretends that it is not serious. He just makes it clear that every single one of us who is engaging with this story is a sinner ourselves. We too have failed to live the holy life that God asks of us. With that being the case, the old adage becomes true. If we use our finger to point out the sin of another, there are three more fingers pointing back at us. Nobody knows what Jesus was writing on the ground as the religious leaders launched their attack. In the ancient world, teachers often used to draw in the dust. That was how they explained things in the days before whiteboards and data projectors. I like to think of Jesus writing the words of other sins on the ground before him. Words like lies, gossip, envy, greed, and perhaps foremost among them in big capital letters, hypocrisy. Or maybe he was drawing in the dust a picture of a Pharisee with a plank in their eye, pointing out the speck of dust in the eye of someone else. 
we know Jesus used that exact image in the Sermon on the Mount. As I said, no one knows. But whatever Jesus wrote or drew in the dust that day, it had an effect. Particularly when he combined it with a personal challenge. Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. On hearing these words, the angry crowd started to put down their rocks and slink off into the distance. I love the little eyewitness detail in verse 9, where it says that it was the older ones who went first. The older and wiser you are, the more intensely aware you become of your own weaknesses and failings. It's often the young firebrands who demand impossible standards. Of course, eventually no one is left accusing at all. The scene ends with just Jesus and the woman. So the first step Jesus takes to get himself out of the trap was for him to show that all sin is serious. No sin is worse than any other. The fact that we as human beings even try to categorise sin, with sexual sins often coming out top of our lists, just demonstrates how we have no idea about the holiness of God. We might like to think of ourselves a few rungs up the ladder of goodness above other people, but in truth, it's as if God is looking at that ladder from the moon. We're never going to reach him in our strength. And the difference between us and the one a rung below us is minuscule from God's perspective. The Bible is very clear. We have all sinned. We have all broken God's law. We have all damaged God's world and damaged God's image in both ourselves and other people. And as a result of our sin, we are all headed for death if it was left just to us and our own devices. But there is some good news ahead in the story. All sin is serious, but Jesus also makes it clear that all sin is forgivable. There is only one sin in the Bible referred to as being unforgivable, and that is refusing to acknowledge Jesus and the Holy Spirit that was at work in his life. For without Christ... There can be no salvation. When the crowd leaves, Jesus straightens up and asks the woman, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? The woman replies, No one, sir. So Jesus declared, Then neither do I condemn you. Again, Jesus is not saying that the woman did not sin. He is not saying that her sin did not matter, as though adultery is just harmless. It isn't. On the contrary, forgiveness means that sin does matter. But through Christ, God is choosing to set it aside. He is actively choosing to show us mercy. If we open our eyes and start taking the Bible seriously, we will see that this has always been how God has behaved. In the Old Testament, God gave his people the sacrifice system so he could find a way to deal with their sin and go on living alongside them. All those sheep and goats that lost their lives were because God deeply loved his people and wanted to go on helping them despite their disobedience. 
And what was it that John the Baptist said about Jesus at the beginning of this gospel? Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This forgiveness is also what Jesus made clear that God would do to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Do you remember those incredible words in verses 16 and 17? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. What we are describing here then is the miracle of grace in the gospel. There really is no greater wonder than this. Jesus, the King of heaven, came into this world to save sinners. Not only did he give up the throne room of heaven, he then went on to give up his very life on the cross. So that we would not have to experience the death, the punishment that our sins deserved. So the Bible is very clear. All sin is serious. But because of the cross, all sin is forgivable through Christ. So Jesus has taken two steps to extricate himself from this trap that the Jewish leaders have set. But there is one more to come. And that is this. After forgiveness, all sinners are called and empowered to change. In this story, Jesus' last words are very important. After relieving the woman of all condemnation, he then turns to her and says, Go. Go now and leave your life of sin. Go now and leave your life of sin. This is vital. The modern mantra of our world today is tolerance. We're expected to tolerate almost everything, even if we strongly disagree with it. Forgiveness is not the same thing as tolerance. Jesus forgives people because his heart breaks for us when he sees us lying in a broken state. His forgiveness is not conditional on anything we can do to achieve it. It is free and undeserved. But once we've experienced God's forgiveness, Jesus does expect us to begin to change. He doesn't tolerate sin. He forgives it. So repentance and turning around and beginning again and striving for holiness are not optional extras in the Christian life. Rather, they are the natural response to knowing that your sins have truly been forgiven. On rescuing this woman, Jesus urges her to change her life. I like to imagine her going back to her husband and being an utterly devoted and faithful wife. As a result, maybe she went on to have a marriage of great joy and fulfilment. I like to imagine her teaching other young men and women as she sees them in danger of going off the rails like she had. That she might become a pillar of wisdom to adolescents in the community. Who knows? But it's entirely possible. When you meet Jesus and experience his mercy, everything 
can change. But what we see here is that at no point does Jesus fall into the trap. At no point does he teach the people that they can just ignore the law. Instead, he makes it clear that he has come to earth precisely to help us fulfill the law. As the gospel goes on, we see Jesus forgive and then grant the gift of his Holy Spirit. Once our hearts have been cleansed by God's mercy, God himself comes to take up residence within us. And the job of the Holy Spirit is to guide our consciences and empower our actions. The job of the Holy Spirit is to help us put things right so that we begin to live a life that both pleases God and blesses those around us. One commentator put it this way. Sin was not treated lightly by Jesus, but sinners were offered the opportunity to start life anew. This story has been preserved in the Bible to teach us that this opportunity for a new beginning is offered to us all. I don't know what it is that you feel guilty about, what shame and regrets you carry. I certainly know my own. If we bring these things to Jesus, he will graciously take them from us. If we seek his forgiveness, he will grant it. If we think our lives will never amount to anything, or that we will forever be unworthy of his love, know that God has other ideas. He wants to encourage us to start again, and will actively help us to live every day more like him. And if that is all true, which it is, this then has big implications for us as a church. We cannot afford to become a church that regularly condemns others or is known to condemn others. Rather, we must welcome sinners, just like ourselves, into worship of God alongside of us. Our prayer is, is that as we preach God's word, God himself will convict them of their sin. That he will then forgive them and raise them up. Our prayer is that the Holy Spirit that is present every time we meet in Jesus' name will move to lead and empower people into newness of life. It is not our job to condemn others. It is never our job. Only God can be the judge of people's lives. And he is both far more holy and far more gracious than us. Jesus avoided the trap of the religious leaders. Let us make sure that we are not trapped by hypocrisy ourselves.